Hello, and welcome to Overcoming. I am Allie Rothrock. This podcast is a companion podcast to my new book, After Trauma, which is out now anywhere you get your books. Today, we're going to be talking about Chapter 4, Your Life is Your Responsibility. This theme, you know, every chapter in this book is themed around a lesson on overcoming that I learned that I wanted to be able to share with you. And this was a huge one. Your life is your responsibility. Your overcoming is your responsibility. I used to think that the people who hurt me were responsible for making me better. Like you did this, you undo it. You cause this harm, you fix it. But all that did was keep me stuck being other people's victim and making me feel like I had no power over my own life. And when I switched that mentally and realized, no, my life is my responsibility and only my responsibility. If I want to get better, I have to decide to fight for that. And I have to continue to make that decision of, I want to get better until I am better. And this chapter is, is titled that and is themed that because this is the chapter where I finally get help. I finally get with a trauma therapist that that helps me begin to walk towards recovery. And so, yeah, I'm excited to talk through this chapter with you. So as I do in each chapter, I talk about, uh, we really start with the quote that I chose. And there were so many quotes that I wanted to use. Everyone that was actually went to print in this book, I chose really, really carefully. And I love, love, love this song from Mumford & Sons. The song is Holland Road. And um, I just love this song. I love this quote. I love this band. So the quote says, And I still believe, though there's cracks you'll see, when I'm on my knees, I still believe. And when I've hit the ground, neither lost nor found, if you believe in me, I still believe. And for me, knowing what this chapter was, this this is me going down to my mental depths, a place where I could have stayed for the rest of my life, with if I would not have realized that my life and my overcoming was my responsibility. I love this quote and I included it here because, you know, it says when I'm on my knees, I still believe when I'm on my knees, I was on my knees mentally. I was defeated almost completely. And when I've hit the ground, neither lost nor found, like that was me. I was, I, I had taken one too many punches. I, I had hit the ground I wasn't lost. I wasn't found. I was just barely existing, but I still believed a tiny little space in my brain that maybe, 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 maybe I could get better. And that was me. I was still believing that even as bad as it was and as hard as it was, I could get better. This chapter begins with me describing what sort of felt like happened, which was that there was this bomb of trauma in my brain that I was sort of walking on a tightrope over unknowingly. And when the environment and the situation changed at this firehouse, when things started to feel very similar and very dangerous to what I had experienced before, my brain went, oh, right. You're not actually safe anywhere. Um consequences for abusive behavior like that's a myth people don't really get held accountable for the things that they do which in my mind meant anything could happen to me and 
nobody would care or stop it. And that caused my brain to become very disordered. And I was heading towards a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. And I talk about how I had some really tough experiences, really experiences that still to this day make me sad, that were sort of the final straws for me in terms of my mental health and being able to keep bad memories at bay. I stopped really being able to do that. I lost the ability to sort of time stamp things. I would have a a memory, which was really like a flashback, and my body and brain couldn't separate out. Did that happen a couple years ago? Did that happen five minutes ago? Is something that bad about to happen? Um, Like I said, it was all just very disordered. And I had an experience with a couple firefighters that I talk about on page 95. And when I was able to get away from that experience and leave that room, I cut my finger on a rough piece of metal on the door handle as I was like hurrying out of the room. And I remember really vividly looking down and seeing that blood. It was a pretty deep cut and having absolutely no feeling. I didn't feel the cut. I didn't feel like my hand was connected to my body. I had completely disassociated while I was experiencing uh, what happened in that room. And that moment, was the moment where I stopped being able to contain what was happening to me. All the I'm fines in the world. I mean, it was just, it was lies at that point. And I, on page 97, I say, mentally I was like a wilting flower curling in on itself in the absence of light. And that's what it felt like. I was just... There wasn't any light there anymore. I was so overwhelmed and overcome by what had happened to me and what continued to happen to me and how how little anyone else seemed to care. And that mental health struggle became the biggest thing in my life. Um, I was dating Forrest, who had become my husband at the time. And so he was there for the worst of this. He was there for the depths of um, where I got to. And I'm so grateful for that because it meant that I wasn't alone in any of it, even the hardest, hardest, hardest moments. And on page 99, I talk about sort of these three ways that my brain had organized into disorder I used to share this list of three three ways um, every single time I spoke to help people understand what that disorder felt like and how true each of these things felt. Like when I would put them up on a slide or when I'm going to say them now or when you saw them written on the page, you're going to say like, wow, Allie, that is not, uh, does not seem like a mentally well person who is, is thinking those things. And I definitely was not, but it made sense at the time. It made sense at the time. So the first thing that I had learned when I was in my trauma was that the world was not a safe place. I did not know where I was safe. Um, I didn't know when I was safe. I just did not feel safe anywhere. And that is a really tough thing uh, when you're trying to just like exist as a person. When you don't know where you're safe, um, you're pretty much scared to go anywhere. Second thing that I learned was that people could not be trusted. I had been so let down by all these different people for all these different years saying like, 
what happened to you there will never happen to you here, or we don't care that you're a woman, we think it's cool, we want you to be a firefighter, or I'm going to make sure that nothing bad ever happens to you. Like all those things were just, were just lies. And so I stopped, I, I lost my faith in people. I just lost my faith in people. And then the third thing that I had learned and really thought was true, and, and this was the one that took the hardest to overcome, was that everything that happened was my fault. That was the place that, that's where people place the blame because like I say later in the book, in our society, we hate the truth teller instead of hating the truth. When a truth feels too big or believing it would require us to take an action that we don't want to take, like standing up and saying, hey, this environment is actually like really toxic and unhelpful and harmful. Because we don't feel like we have the capacity to do that or we don't want to do that, we just hate the person telling the truth instead of hating the actual truth. And that's what I continue to experience was anytime I <clears throat> would say, this thing is happening to me here, or this was really unfair, or this was really unsafe, or this doesn't seem right, the blame was always put right back on my shoulders. And so I started to internalize that even though I was trying not to. You do. You internalize those things. And then on page 100 and 101, I got into talking about negative coping skills. And I say negative coping skills, like we use them because they work. They do work, but only for a really short period of time. And then all that does is give us another thing that we have to overcome on our way out of the tunnel, like we talked about in the last chapter. And then when we get into 102, I talk about the only, the, the way that I saw with the tools that were available to me at the time and the I mean, I had no reserves of mental energy left. I had no reserves of emotional energy left. I was so completely tapped out. The only way I saw to make it, to make these big, sad, scary feelings more manageable was to just try to stop feeling them. Just to try to compartmentalize away and pretend like these really bad things weren't happening so I could get a relief from it. But what that meant was I wasn't able to feel much emotion at all. And I'm a really emotional person. Um, if you follow the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram four. So we're big feelings, big, big, big feelings. I'm an emotional person. Um, I see the world through that lens. And so I was existing in the world differently to how it was authentic for me just because I was trying to help myself not feel the big scary feelings, but all that did was not let me feel much at all. So it was pretty numb. And then on page 103, I talk about finally picking my head up and deciding to fight for my own life and deciding to get help from the person that I hoped would be willing to give it to me, which was this therapist that I got so lucky to know named Jill. And I had to decide that I wanted to make a change. And people ask me, and I wrote about this, you know, like what happened that made you finally decide to get help? Like, was there a big crisis moment? You know, were you at a decision point? Like what, what was it that happened to make you finally want to do something different? And truthfully, I mean, really, I remember sitting on the floor of my bedroom. It was the middle of the night. I wasn't sleep because I didn't sleep a lot because when I slept I had nightmares and those were terrifying so I just chose to be like sleep deprived all the time but I had so much adrenaline from the hypervigilance that comes with PTSD that I didn't feel tired it was a lot <laughs> there was a lot going on um but 
I was sitting there on the floor of my bedroom like I did most nights. And I just truly got sick of it. I got sick of myself. I got sick of the same thought patterns. I got sick of having such a short-term view on my life because I didn't have the energy to think of the future. All I could do was deal with the next moment and the next wave of panic and the next wave of fear and anger. I wasn't thinking ahead to the future. It was as if I didn't think I had one. And I just had this moment where I was just so tired of being stuck there. I was so tired of not being hopeful. I was so tired of all the noise in my head that was so noisy that I decided to text this person who I knew, Joan. Just knew that she was a counselor, that's all. And she got right back to me and I met with her the next day. And the biggest thing that I remember about that first session with her was that she did one really simple thing. I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy to do. She did it masterfully, was that she validated me. She gave me permission to feel what I was feeling because for so long, my thoughts were like, these people did these horrible things to me. I'm so mad at them. I'm mad at the lack of action. I'm mad at the fact that nobody cared. But maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I did something wrong that made them do that, which is garbage trauma survivor stuff. But most of us have been there where we put some blame on ourselves at some point. But Jill heard out everything that had happened to me. I didn't hold anything back. She wasn't shocked. She wasn't like... The trauma didn't shock her, which I was really relieved about. Like I found someone else who could manage it with me and could hold it all with me. And she just really told me, like I say on page 104, um, she did not judge. She did not blame. She was not shocked. She just listened. When I finished, she told me that given what I had gone through, being as affected as I was, quote, made sense. When I saw that she wasn't going to dismiss me, I relaxed. And Jill diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder on that day. And I remember being, I remember having the thought walking to her office that day. I wonder if she's going to tell me that I have something wrong with me. Like I knew, I knew that I was not myself. I knew that I was not existing in the world the way that I wanted to. I knew that I felt really out of control mentally. I didn't know the names for it, but I remember thinking like, I wonder if she's going to tell me that I have something and I didn't want that. We don't want that. We don't want someone to tell us that we have like this label. But when she told me that I had post-traumatic stress disorder, and I'll talk about sort of us reflecting on that moment together, uh, which, which we did more recently, giving me that diagnosis gave me validation and visibility, which I so desperately needed. And telling me that I had this thing gave the monster in my head a name. And as I wrote, it made the monster not my fault and its existence not my choice. It was there. It was a thing that I had in my brain because of the trauma that I had gone through, an injury to the part of my brain that dealt with stress and fear. And like injuries, it could heal. That's what Jill told me. And... Going back to that night on the floor of my bedroom when I decided to reach out to her, I knew that I could spend 
all of my energy just trying to get through the next moment. Or I could spend my energy elsewhere, trying maybe to get better. I was going to be expending huge amounts of energy either way. And I thought, well, I might as well try. I might as well just try. And then on 106, I go into this metaphor that I love, 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 love about sinking, being sunk, being the sunken girl. That's what it felt like mentally. And how going to Jill's office for the first time was me kicking my legs and swimming to the light that was up above me in my ocean. And only I could do that. Only I could decide that I wanted to swim. Only I could decide that I was willing to tell these stories. Only I could decide that I was going to try to get back to shore. But at the bottom of 107, I remember there were only two times that I cried while writing this book. Um, the first one was in chapter one. And this is the second, the paragraph at the bottom of page 107, where I talk about the different people that were with me while I was swimming to the shore. My parents, my sibling, my best friend Hannah, and my then boyfriend, now husband Forrest. And this part makes me so emotional and makes me so grateful for the people that I have in my life and how they all, each and every one of them, contributed to me being who I am and how I am today. Even though I was the one swimming, I had to do it for myself. I wasn't alone while I did it either. And... I talk about how trauma is something that is felt, it is experienced, it's something that I've seen being over-pathologized in the trauma counseling community, and how important it is to really let each person's healing journey and overcoming journey be really specific and unique to them. And I love, this is one of my favorite parts in the book, um, on page 110, where I talk about how I revisited this time in my life with Jill. I met her again um, probably a year or two ago, or more longer than that now, um, but recently to just sort of reflect on the work that we did together. Number one, I wanted to make sure that I was writing about it accurately, that my memories about it were correct, but I also just wanted to see like how she would reflect on that time now. And she talked about in that first session when she gave me that diagnosis, she talked about watching me walk myself to the conclusion that I did actually have PTSD because she was telling me that I had it and I was like, no, I don't think so. And how she needed she needed me to see it almost medically, you know, with, with the EMT background that I have and sort of see its legitimacy that way. And she she said, I, I she said, Allie, I remember the moment when it came over you. I remember when you finally and fully realized what I had been telling you. You had something called post-traumatic stress disorder, that it was real and that it was not your fault. And what a gift she gave me. What a gift she gave me in those moments. And I know clicking with the first therapist that I tried was really uncommon and super lucky. But I write about this and then I want it to be true for you too, that if you find yourself needing that extra help and that extra space to talk with someone about your experiences, someone who went to school for a very long time to help you navigate them. Um, and if you don't click with them right away, you don't have to just tough it out. If you really don't click and you really don't feel like for whatever reason they're going to be the most effective help for you, keep that motivation that got you there in the first place and keep trying to find a therapist that you do fit with. And then at the end, I talk about <clears throat> resilience and this concept of learned helplessness. 
And I talk about a couple different ways that I've heard resilience or resilient people, a couple different definitions that I've heard, and how at the end of this one quote from this author, Diane Kotu, she says, resilient people, they posit, they possess three characteristics, a staunch acceptance of reality, a deep belief often buttressed by strongly held values that life is meaningful, and an uncanny ability to improvise. And I love that. So the three characteristics, an acceptance of reality. So I do accept this was my reality. I had post-traumatic stress disorder. My brain felt broken and that was my life. I could spend time ignoring it and avoiding it, pretending like that wasn't happening, or I could put my energy to accepting where I was and seeing what steps forward I could take. The second characteristic that I can see that I had, you know, this characteristic of resilience I was showing during this time, that I had a strong belief that life was meaningful. I believed that there was something good that was going to come out of my experiences and that propelled me through some of the hardest trauma recovery work. And then finally, an uncanny ability to improvise. Having that trauma, having that brain full of trauma was not how I saw my life going. It's not, you know, a, a stop on the bus that I was looking forward to or anticipating or, or saw coming, but I had to just go with where I was and improvise. Okay, this is where we are now. I accept it. I'm going to improvise. What can we do to get to get myself to a new place? And then at the end of this chapter, we have our, our reflection and action. And I talk about, you know, is there a way today, not tomorrow, not next week, not whenever you think you're, quote, better today, could you kick your legs in the water just a little bit? Could you increase your ability to be resilient based on the three qualities that we learned? Are there changes that you're willing to make until you're all better? And can you take a step towards one of them today? So I challenge you with that question. Thanks for joining me. Next week, we're on to the last chapter in part one, chapter five. There is no one right way to be a survivor. I love this chapter. See you next week. Bye.